You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, it is Communion Sunday, and to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table together, we're going to look today at Psalm 74. This is sort of an overlooked psalm, but it contains, I believe, a timely word for us today. It's, it's not about a, a, a very um, cheery subject. It's, it's all about the destruction of the temple uh, by the Babylonians uh, in 586 B.C., Now that's ancient history, and you may wonder how that could be relevant to you today. Well, I I pray that you'll see its relevance just uh, today by the Spirit. Psalm 74, it's printed in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. This is God's Word. A Maskil of Asaph. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget 
the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today by your spirit you would uh, speak to each of us, including the preacher, uh, that we may see you, forsake our idols, and rest in you in the midst of these troubling days. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a time like ours, when the church is under attack from without and from within, and people on the left and on the right are storming and trashing institutions that are sacred symbols of law and order, it seems to me that this psalm about the terrible destruction of the temple in Jerusalem speaks powerfully to you and me today, probably more powerfully than ever. As I was uh, reflecting on Psalm 74 this week, I I thought about another cataclysmic event uh, in history, one that occurred about a thousand years after uh, the destruction of the temple, and that is the sacking of Rome. Rome had ruled the world for 800 years. It had become, with the conversion of Emperor Constantine, an officially Christian empire. And yet on August 24th, 410 AD, Alaric and his Gothic warriors breached the walls of Rome and burned significant parts of the city. There were two great Christians alive in 410. One was Jerome, most famous for his translation of the Bible into Latin from the Greek and the Hebrew. And the other was Augustine, maybe one of the greatest Christian minds in history. Well, even a Christian as mature and great uh, as Jerome wailed, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? If Rome can perish, what can be safe? You see, (laughs) Jerome, Jerome, one of the great church fathers, had 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 created an idol in his own heart. He had made a good thing, Rome, 
an ultimate thing. In, in, in Jerome's mind, Rome was non-negotiable. The safety of the church, the security of Christians, depended in his mind on God and the continuing rule of Rome. You may be thinking like that today. I believe a lot of Christians are. Of course, we all, our hearts are idol factories, right? We all create idols of our heart. But if, if you find yourself in these times thinking like Jerome, that God and, and something else is necessary for your well-being, for your security, then you have created an idol and we are in a time right now where, where our something else's, whatever they are, whether it's health, whether it's a particular political cause, our something else are being exposed and they're being threatened, right? And when the good things that we make ultimate things are, are, are exposed and threatened, fear despair and anger are always the result. Now Jerome's contemporary Augustine had a very different take. He was also deeply troubled by, by the, uh, the sacking of Rome. But he wasn't undone by it. And I went back and, and, and looked at some of his sermons. Believe it or not, we have, we have his sermons that he preached uh, in, in the wake of that sacking of Rome in 410. And I, I just took some, some excerpts from his sermons. He said, don't lose heart, brothers. There will be an end to every earthly kingdom. If this is now the end, God sees... The world is old. It's full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is losing its grip. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Your youth shall be renewed like an eagle's. O God's own people, O body of Christ, O high-born race of foreigners on earth, you do not belong here. You belong somewhere else. Augustine could bring it. Well, today this is a communion meditation. We're not and you, you, you may thank me, we're not going to dive into all the details of Psalm 74. But what I want to see, well, what I want you to see as we come to the table is, is sort of the main thrust of Psalm 74. And, and what Psalm 74's main thrust is, is it's telling you and I, you and me, uh, how as believers in Jesus, we, we, can, we can confront we should be confronting our serious life-altering circumstances. 
and confronting those circumstances without being overwhelmed, without being cast into fear, without being thrown into despair. So we can be more like Brother Augustine and and less like Brother Jerome in the face of today's trouble. And Psalm 74 breaks out real nicely into, into three sections that each of which will sort of guide you and me into how to confront uh, our troubles today. Uh, The first is, uh, first thing we need to do is grieve. That's verses one through 11. And then the second thing we, we, we must do is remember. That's verses 12 through 17. And then finally, the third thing we must do is entrust entrust verses 18 to 23 and i'll unpack that in a second so that's our outline grieve remember and entrust so first grieve verses 1 through 11 you know there is a difference between grief and despair grief or sorrow uh leaves room for consolation. It's a reality, it's hard, but there's room for consolation. Despair, on the other hand, leaves no room for consolation. Right? When you're in despair, uh, another thing we say is that you're inconsolable. There's no hope. Despair is what happens when you lose a non-negotiable thing, right, an an idol. But if you're a Christian, you actually know the ultimate non-negotiable. And the ultimate non-negotiable is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the one who is above all things. You will never lose him. You will never be abandoned by him. So Christians, listen friends, Christians are never actually in a place of ultimate despair because God is real, God is there, God is working, which means there is always hope. Always hope. Now in the moment, it might feel like you have no hope, but I, you know, our feelings are, are, are horribly uh, unreliable barometers of reality. You know, if we just processed our reality through our feelings, we'd, we'd, we'd get it wrong a lot. We might feel hopeless, but we're not really. Now the writer of Psalm 74 here, a believer, was was deeply grieving the destruction of the temple. And at first, it might sound like he was in despair, right? It certainly seemed to feel utterly hopeless to him. You you can see that in verse one. It feels like this is a forever reality. Why do you cast us off forever? Talks in verse three about the perpetual ruins 
uh, of the temple, right? That this is, this is a, now a perpetual state. It's always going to be this way. It's not going to change. You felt like that way before? But the writer of Psalm 74 is grieving. He's not despairing. And, and we know that really from the get-go. It's, it's something that we must almost, it, it's, it's so obvious on its face that we sometimes overlook it, right? Psalm 74 is a prayer. This, this from the get-go, his grief is being expressed to God. He's not complaining to another person. He's not, uh, you know, curled up in the fetal position in his bedroom. He's inviting God into his tragedy, asking God to tour the damage, to view the battlefield, to do something about it. And he's doing that as someone who self-identifies with a people who have been purchased and redeemed by God, right? Verse 2. So what does that mean for you? What does this mean for you, Christian friend? Uh, it means in your trouble today, you need to grieve. You, not despair. A and you grieve quorum Deo, before the face of God. You bring your grief to God as a person who has been redeemed by God. You know, I think too many Christians have the idea, especially in evangelical America, that, that it isn't spiritual to, to be sad or to be mad. All you have to do is read the Psalms. You can be honest with God. Grieve. Jesus did. It's right to grieve the, the effects of sin uh, in, in the world. So we grieve. We don't despair. <laughs> we grieve. And then there's a second thing you can do that the writer of Psalm 74 could not do. In verse 9, he said something very, very significant. He says that one of our problems here, Lord, is that there's no longer any prophet. Now at that time, the prophet was the, was the way you received a word from God, right? If you didn't have a prophet, you didn't have God's word. That's not our problem, right? You have a treasure in your hands right now. The living and active word of God. You can do what the psalm writer couldn't. You can process your trouble, your suffering, in light of what God is saying to you right now, right here. Now that may sound trite, it may sound obvious. You may not really know what a privilege that is until you are in a place of deep grief, deep suffering. And then something amazing happens the words start flying off the page. I know some of you have experienced that. I have. Um, 
We've talked about it. You know, you could read a psalm for years and it doesn't particularly uh, strike you as, as meaningful or, or particularly helpful. And then you find yourself in, in, in trouble and you go to God's word and you read that psalm again and it just, it just knocks you right between the eyes. That's the living and acting, active word of God that helps you process what you're going through. Okay, so the first thing we do as we face our troubles is we grieve, not despair, we grieve. And then the second thing we do is remember, right? It's not enough to grieve. You don't stop at being sorrow, being sorry or, or being full of grief. You also need to remember. And that's exactly what the psalm writer does. At verse 12, there's this, there's this shifting of gears, right? He's, he's sort of taking God on this tour of, of the city and, and, and telling him to look at this mess, look at this destruction. How long is it going to be before you do something about it? And then he says, verse 12, yet God, my king, is from all of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. What do you need to remember? What do I need to to remember. We need to remember, friends, that our troubles didn't happen to us because God was not strong enough to prevent them. Our lives are under management. God, by the mere power of his word, has brought and is still proactively bringing order out of chaos. That's what the writer is saying. Look at what God does. That's what he does. He brings order out of chaos. And not only that, he, he establishes boundaries. He lays, he has laid down, continues to lay down boundaries, physical boundaries, moral boundaries. He's created everything and he's managing everything, including the control of the movement of every heavenly body in the cosmos. We're too finite to see it, to fully understand it. But even as we experience tragedies, suffering, even as good things in our lives are threatened and brought low, we must remember, Christian friends, that God is powerfully in control, bringing order out of chaos, working salvation even now in the midst of the earth. Trust it. Trust him. Well, when you've grieved before the face of God and when you have remembered his unsurpassed power at work in your sorrow and in your suffering, then you do the last thing. You entrust yourself and your suffering to God. This is, this is really the big one. You entrust yourself to him. And it's expressed three beautiful ways here. This is verses 18 through 23. 
First in verse 19, the psalm writer is talking to God and, 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 he's, and he likens God's people to a dove. Do you see that? To a dove in the hands of God. You think about a dove, right? You put, put a dove in, in our hands. What can, what can a silly, fragile, not real smart dove do when you're holding it other than entrust its life to you? Right? Its life is literally in your hands. And the psalm writer says, that's who we are. We're a dove in God's hand. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the last volume of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, there's a, an antichrist figure called Tosh. And, and Jill uh, is afraid of Tosh. She, they, they are surrounding a, uh, a, a, a sort of a shed in the woods where he may be hiding. She's worried that she may confront this Tosh, this horrible, evil uh, monster. But with Jill is, is Tyrion. Tyrion is the last true king of Narnia. And, and he sees her fear and he bends down and says into Jill's ear, courage child, we are all between the paws of the true Aslan. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, the, is, the li is a lion who is, represents Christ. He's the Christ figure in the story. We are all between the paws of the true Aslan. Friends, do you see yourself that way? A dove in the hands of God, uh, a, 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 a child... <laughs> between the paws of the Lion of Judah? Part of entrusting ourselves to God, entrusting yourself to God, is recognizing who you are and where you are in relationship to God. You're a dove in his hands. He's not gonna throw you to wild beasts. You're between the paws of the true Christ. Paws that were stretched out for you. We need to live in light of that reality. We need to live our lives like who we are and where we are, between the paws of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, that's the first way entrusting is expressed. The second way it's expressed is in verse 22, where the writer says to God, defend your cause. You hear what, what the psalm writer is saying here? 
right? It's not, it's really a reflection that this prayer is not, God, do this and that for me. God, give me what I perceive I need. No, he's saying, this isn't about me. God, it's your cause that I want. I, am in, I entrust you, God, to defend your cause, your purposes, your will, because one, God, I can't do it, and two, I know that your cause, your purposes, your will is, are always good, pleasing, and perfect. Good, pleasing, and perfect for the world, good, pleasing, and perfect for me and for you. Can you say that? Can you say the same thing? Lord, defend your cause. Effect your will. Accomplish your purposes. That's a prayer that will always be answered and that will always yield good, pleasing, and perfect results. And then third, the third way that entrusting is, is expressed here is in verse 20. I skipped, skipped it because I wanted to end with this one. The psalm writer says to the Lord, have regard for the covenant. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land, he says, are full of the habitations of violence. Now, what's he, what's he doing there? Well, he's hearkening back to the covenant. A covenant, right, is an, is an oath-bound promise. It's, it's usually an exchange of promises. Accompanied with a vow. Marriage is a contemporary example of a covenant. He's thinking back to the covenant that God made with Abraham centuries before where God promised to make Abraham and his descendants a great nation, to bless them so that they would bless the entire world forever. He, it would be a never-ending nation. Now, the amazing thing about that covenant, which is the foundational covenant of all of them, Uh, that Abrahamic covenant that is traced through the Old Testament and into the New is is that even though it's bilateral, even though that there are, are, you know, there, there are two sides to it, only God took an oath to perform it. He wouldn't let Abraham do it. And you'll remember that weird oath, the weird covenant ceremony, right, where they... They, they cut a bunch of animals in two and they lined up the pieces to create an aisle so that you could, you'd walk through these cut up carcasses. And that's, you know, today we use an odory. Back then it was a little more graphic. Uh, and basically you, you made a promise and then you walked through those pieces and you were saying, I promise to do what I've just, to do what I've just promised. And if I don't, may what happened to these animals happen to me.
God wouldn't let Abraham do that. He wouldn't let him walk through the animals. He put him in some kind of a sleep and only God walked through the pieces. In other words, God vowed to perform both sides of the covenant, his side and our side. And he was promising to bear the penalty for non-performance, his side and our side. Of course, God's not going to not perform. But it's a good thing that God swore to take, took a vow to take the penalty for our non-performance because in the words of the psalmist, my heart is a dark place in the land full of violence. And let's be honest. Every human heart is. If it were up to us to obey God's covenant in order to, to, to be in a relationship with him, we'd be toast, right? We'd be under God's judgment, not under his smile. So the psalmist says, have regard for that covenant. Well, how did God answer that prayer? That grief-stricken prayer as the writer was looking out at the smoldering ruins of the temple. Well, God answered that prayer in a way that his people then uh, could not have imagined. He raised another temple. No, not the second temple. There would be a second temple built after the destruction of this one. After they had returned from exile, a second temple would be built, not with the glory in the, the, of the first, but it would be there, the second temple. And then, and then years later, that second temple would be remodeled and expanded and become known as Herod's temple. So it's not, he, he, he didn't raise the second temple. He didn't raise Herod's temple. Those, those were real, those were, but they were just preliminaries. They were still pointing forward to another temple that God raised. John 2, it's recorded wonderful event, actually a, a, a dramatic event in the ministry of Jesus when he ran the money changers out of Herod's temple tipped over their tables, created a, a whip of rope and chased them out of, of, of Herod's temple. And, and after he did that, of course, the Pharisees said, uh, what sign are you going to give us that shows us that you have the authority to do what you just did? Because that's pretty troubling what you just did. What, what sign will you give us that you have the authority to do that? And Jesus, in, in vintage Jesus style, answers this way. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But, says John, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. 
See, friends, God ultimately answered the Psalm 74 prayer by raising a new temple, which was his own son. The true, the true dwelling place of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, fulfilling that ancient covenant that his father had entered into centuries before, satisfied your side of the transaction. Jesus came in regard to that covenant. Pray, have regard for the covenant. God says, okay, I will. Here's my son. He's going to perform your side of the covenant. He will fully obey the law for you. And he will fully bear the penalty for your covenantal disobedience. You have failed to obey the law. You failed to keep the terms of the covenant. Now Jesus has positively done it for you, and now negatively, he's going to bear the punishment that you deserve for your failure. And then in three days, God raised the temple back up. Not from the foundations, this time from the dead. Jesus was vindicated. And what I want you to understand, Christian friends, is what this means for you right now is that you can, right now, without reservation, without worry, without fear, without doubt, entrust your life to God. You can be the dove in his hand. You can lay down between the paws of Jesus because God has already given his son for you. If he's done that, will he not also with him freely give you all things? God has loved you at the expense of his son. Therefore, he will not allow anything to thwart his good plan for your life, your eternal life. He loves you enough to live for you, to die for you, and now live for you again. And because of that, Christian friends, nothing, nothing, not your sin, not your shame, not your accusing conscience, not the judgments of other people of you, not your dark heart, not your half heart, not your deep secrets, not your addictions, not your repeated failures, not even Satan himself can separate you from God and his love. Friends, this is the ultimate comfort. It's the ultimate answer to our suffering. It's the ultimate defeater of our heart idols. God has given us himself. And that's enough. That's more than enough. So look to Jesus, friends. Look to Jesus. He's entered your suffering. Look at him on the cross for you. Look at him in the ground dead for you. Look at him raised and at the right hand of God interceding for you. 
and then look at your trouble and look at your suffering through that, through the cross, through the grave, through his resurrection throne, and know and know that it's going to be okay. Let's come to his table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from a time of suffering into our own time of, of suffering and trouble and confusion. And now, Lord, as we come to your table, we ask that your spirit would use the bread and the wine to really communicate with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.